J. R. R. Tolkien, a great writer that inspires many of us. If you are listening to this podcast, I suppose it's because, like me, you feel fascinated by The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, which are among the best-known literary works of the 20th century. You may also know that Tolkien was not only an author of high fantasy literature, he was also a critic and scholar of medieval literature. And I would say that many of the characteristics of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit that make us love those works are elaborations or developments of features that Tolkien learned from medieval authors. In this brief podcast, I will be focusing on one such feature, representations of evil. Perhaps, like me, you always found Tolkien's monsters to be memorable. The Balrog of Moria, Sauron the Terrible, Smaug the Golden, the Wargs in The Lord of the Rings, Draugluin and Karharoth in the Silmarillion, Ungoliant, Shilog, and the rest of evil spiders. These are all remarkable characters and creatures, and I'm sure that most of us would agree that without them, Tolkien's novels would not be the same. Without them, Tolkien's novels would not be as significant as they are. Tolkien's work is so popular and so well known, and his style of fantasy has become so influential, that we might be tempted to think, or, or we might be tempted to believe, that the way Tolkien portrayed his monsters is the only way they could have been portrayed. But this is actually not the case. Tolkien's monsters have one special characteristic in common, and that characteristic, that quality, Tolkien learned from Beowulf. In this podcast, I will explain what that quality is that makes Tolkien's monsters so memorable, and that Tolkien learned from Beowulf. But before that, I will explain. I will need to explain briefly what Beowulf is and how Tolkien understood it. Well, Beowulf is an old English poem composed in the 8th century, around the year 700. That is many, many years ago. And yet, this poem, Beowulf, remains fascinating and powerful in many ways. The main story that it tells is very simple. Around 200 years earlier, in the 6th century, Hrothgar, king of Denmark, became a very successful and military, sorry, very successful military and political leader. And in order to celebrate his success, he commanded a whole be built, where his people parted and celebrated the glory of Denmark every night. Their happiness and their prosperity became famous. But one day, their fortune changed. A monster, a powerful troll called Grendel who was envious of their happiness, decided to put an end to that and attack them. Every night during many years, Grendel attacked the whole of the Danes and killed many of them, spreading panic and bringing the Danes' bliss to an end. Hrothgar's misfortune became well known and a cause of shame and lamentation, until a young man in neighboring Sweden across the sea 
heard about the Danes' problems. This young man, as you probably have guessed, was Beowulf, a remarkably strong human, who decided to help Hrothgar, travel to Denmark, and kill the troll Grendel with his bare hands. The troll unfortunately had a mother, who as you can imagine was not very happy about having lost her son. Grendel's mother attacks in retaliation and kills one of the Danish king's most trusted counsellors. So Hrothgar the king is once more troubled by the new monster attack. But Beowulf says, Hey Hrothgar, no worries, I'll take care of this new monster as well. Then Beowulf <clears throat> goes to Grendel's mother's mere and kills her there too. The Danes, as you can imagine, are all very happy again. Beowulf travels back home, across the sea, and fifty years pass. After all these years, Beowulf has become king of his people, the Gits, in southern Sweden. A dragon then attacks Beowulf's kingdom, and Beowulf, the famous monster slayer, goes to the dragon's lair to kill it. And even though he manages to kill the dragon, the dragon also manages to kill Beowulf. There is, of course, much more to Beowulf than just this, but what I just said captures the fundamentals of the main story. The trolls, Grendel and his mother, are creatures of northern folklore, and this is reflected in, in the terms, or in the words, that the characters in the story, like Beowulf and Hrothgar, used to refer to them. Eoten, giant. Furs, troll. Fievel, monster. Shuka, shinna, spectres. These are some of the words in the beautiful Old English language that indicate, without a doubt, that the antagonists in the poem are to be identified with the monsters of Scandinavian tales and legends. What is interesting is that the narrator of the poem, unlike the characters, uses completely different words to refer to these monsters. Some of these words that the narrator uses are Beowulf, which means devil or demon, Haven, which means heathen, Hellehaften, which means captives of hell, Hellruna, those who know the secrets of hell. As you can see, these are obviously Christian terms. Moreover, the narrator also tells us that the monsters, these trolls of northern folklore, are the descendants of Cain, the biblical character who killed Abel, and they are also, according to the narrator, goddess Ansekan, the enemies of God. So basically, as you can see, there is a mixture or a blending of northern folklore and Christian theology in the representation of evil in Beowulf. The antagonists are both Scandinavian trolls and Christian devils, at the same time. Earlier critics thought this a weakness of the poem. 
the 8th century author they complained was unable to distinguish pagan myth, pagan fantasy, from serious, sober Christian theology. But Tolkien disagreed. In a famous lecture that he gave in 1936, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Queen, Tolkien said that this connection between the monsters and Christianity was not a confusion, or to put it in his own words, an inexplicable blunder of taste. Rather, he argued that the monster's association with Christian demons in the poem is an artistic, brilliant, functional, and very intelligent combination that makes Beowulf work as poetry. But how? What Tolkien says is that if the monsters had been purely spiritual, if they had been only the demons of Christianity, then the poem would read as a religious allegory or a homily, and it would not therefore be as exciting and as powerful. To put it in his own words, and I quote, He, the Beowulf poet, was still dealing with a great temporal tragedy, and not yet writing an allegorical homily in verse. Grendel inhabits the visible world, and it's the flesh and blood of men. He enters their houses by the doors. The dragon wields a physical fire, and covets gold, not souls. He is slain with iron in his belly. End of quote. So basically, what Tolkien is saying is that Beowulf is not Spencer's fairy queen. In Beowulf, the antagonists, because of their physicality, precisely because of their material dimension, pose a real threat to the character's physical integrity. And this material dimension, which is contributed by Northern folklore, makes the poem more thrilling more stimulating, and not a mere homily. At the same time, however, in order for the poem to be meaningful, to have symbolic power, the monsters ought to have spiritual dimension attached to them. Imagine that Beowulf had fought against an irrational animal, like a bear or a wolf, or against a normal, standard human, rather than against the forces of evil. The point then would not be as significant as it is. It is then the monster's spiritual background, which is contributed by Christianity, by Christian theology, that makes them really powerful and meaningful, that, make, that makes the monsters symbolic. As Tolkien put it, and I quote, in this poem, the balance is nice, but it is preserved. The large symbolism is near the surface, but it does not break through nor become allegory. Something more significant than standard hero. A man faced with a foe more evil than any human enemy of house or realm is before us, and yet incarnate in time, walking in heroic history, and treading the named lands of the north. End of quote. So it is basically the combination between materiality 
on the one hand, and spirituality on the other, that makes the monsters of Beowulf great. And this is precisely, I would argue, what Tolkien learned from that poem. That the antagonists have to be both material and spiritual at the same time. And this is the quality that the main monsters in Tolkien's work have in common. Think of the Balrog of Moria, for example. He is impressive from a physical perspective. Tall, menacing, shrouding fire and darkness, brandishing fiery weapons, probably, but not certainly, wings. But the most terrifying thing about the Balrog is that such a gigantic creature is inhabited by an evil spirit, by an evil intelligence. intelligence. So, the Balrog is one of the rebellious Maya that rose against Eru Ilúvatar at the beginning of time. And the same, of course, could be said about Sauron, the Dark Lord, and Melkor's lieutenant. Sauron is a spirit, and that is the most threatening thing about him. And the same we could say about the works and the Barrowites, material creatures inhabited or animated by evil, diabolical spirits. In a way, it could be said that the cosmological background presented in the Silmarillion gives significance or symbolic power to the monsters of the Lord of the Rings, just as the biblical background gives meaning to the monsters of Northern folklore in Beowulf. Before finishing, there is one more point that I, that I would like to make. It should be clear by now that Tolkien admired the Beowulf poet's depiction of his monsters. But there is one thing that Tolkien didn't like. This is what Tolkien said about the poem's dragon, and I quote, Beowulf's dragon, if one wishes really to criticize, is not to be blamed for being a dragon, but rather for not being dragon enough, plain, pure, fairy story dragon. There are in the poem some vivid touches of the right kind, as in, Sase Wirman Walk, in which this dragon is real world with a bestial life and thought of his own. But the conception, nonetheless, approaches Draconicus rather than Draco, a personification of Mali's great destruction, the evil side of heroic life, and of the undiscriminating cruelty of fortune that distinguishes not good or bad, the evil side of all life. End of quote. So Tolkien did not completely like, or even dislike, Beowulf Dragon for being too abstract, for being a personification, and hence for lacking a personality. And this is something that he obviously rectified in his own work. Think of Smaug the Terrible in The Hobbit, for example. Unlike the dragon of Beowulf, which does not speak even once, Smaug has several dialogues, and in these he reveals himself to be cruel, 
sadistic, greedy, arrogant, but also self-assured and very, very intelligent. Smaug has indeed a very interesting personality from a psychological perspective, and I would say that his personality is in fact not very dissimilar from that of very successful people that you may know. Another remarkable example from Tolkien's work is Glaurung, the father of all dragons. Glaurung is the main antagonist in the story of Turin Turambar in the Cuenta Silmarillion. And in that chapter of the Silmarillion, in the story of, of Turin, there are from the very beginning many references to the dragon. And from the beginning of the story, the narrator vividly describes Glaurung's trail of distraction. But it takes some time for the dragon to make his first appearance. And finally, when Turin, the hero, and Glaurung, the dragon, meet for the first time, what we quite naturally expect is a brutal fight. But that is not what we get. Instead, Glaurung very politely greets Turin with the following words. Hail, son of Hurin, well met. Poof. I must say, I've always found this to be one of the most powerful moments in Tolkien's work. Tolkien first makes us expect a bestial creature, and then he presents us with a courteous, polite, well-mannered, and intelligent mind. And that is precisely, I would say, what makes Glaurung all the more threatening. And in fact, as many of you will know, Glaurung will bring about for Turing a fate more dreadful and more tragic than that of Oedipus himself. And with this I finish. I expect you to have gained two ideas from this podcast. One, that there is artistry behind Tolkien's monsters. They present an attractive and intelligent combination of materiality and spirituality that make them work poetically, symbolically, without becoming allegorical. And this Tolkien learned from the Beowulf poet. Two, Tolkien found fault with the way that the Beowulf poet depicted his dragon. Too abstract. This mistake Tolkien rectified in his work by providing his dragons with truly memorable personalities. I also hope to have persuaded you that if you like Tolkien and fantasy, then you love medieval literature. And if you would like to explore more this connection between Tolkien and medieval literature, I strongly recommend two books to you. The Road to Middle-earth, by my dear friend Tom Shippey, and The Keys of Middle-earth, Discovering Medieval Literature Through the Fiction of J.R.R. Tolkien, by my Oxford colleague Stuart Lee, and Elizabeth Solopova. Two books, I must say, that I always found very inspiring, and from which I can assure you, you will learn a lot. It was love of talking that made me read, that made me read and study medieval literature, and it was then love of medieval literature that made me leave southern Spain, where I am from, and come to Oxford to teach and study. 
And if you follow this path, if you study medieval literature, perhaps one day you, lover of Tolkien and of fantasy, will also become a literary scholar, which is, I think, one of the greatest joys in a human life.